In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Politically Georgia podcast, where we bring you news and analysis of all the latest Georgia shenanigans in Congress and under the gold dome. And today I'm joined by Tamar Hallerman, our Washington correspondent, who's also been a frequent guest on the podcast all year. Uh, happy upcoming new year, Tamar. Yay, last or one of the last podcasts of 2018 anyway. Yeah, we're about to go through the top 10 stories of this year in Georgia politics. But before we do, we just want to thank all of our listeners for uh, bearing with us to the start of what I think has been a great first year for our podcast. We've had a blast bringing you all the Georgia political news um, and and all the developing tidbits from the gubernatorial contest, the legislature, all the debates, all the fun stuff, all the campaign craziness throughout the last year. Mm -hmm. Let's begin. Uh, We're going to run down a top 10 list of top 10 stories, and we're going to start Number 10, with former governor and U.S. Senator Zell Miller dying. Uh, he was a, a, a legend in Georgia politics, and of course he was most known for his record as the creator of the Georgia Lottery and the lottery-funded Hope Scholarship. Exactly. Um, his his uh, funeral services, he, he had a few all across the state, uh, attracted everyone um, from current and, and former governors, current and former senators, and, and everybody talking about especially his impact on the, the Hope Scholarship, including you, Greg. Yeah, I went to the University of Georgia um, because of him, really. Um, I, I still remember, and I did a column about this earlier this year, but I still remember uh, my mom, who was a single teacher, getting freaked out about, you know, sending me to college and all that, and, um, and just being you know, calmed by by the fact that we had the Hope Scholarship. And, um, you know, and back then it paid for all of my tuition. Now, um, you know, it's gone through some iterations and, and some of those awards were cut, but it still picks up a substantial tab. Um, and his legacy extends beyond the Hope Scholarship, of course. That's the thing that people remember most about him. But um, he was a conservative Democrat who was not afraid to uh, cross party lines. And, of course, he did so the most memorably giving a keynote address in the Republican National Convention uh, back in 2004. Yeah, he, he spoke in favor of, of George W. Bush. And I that was something in all of the remembrances that we saw from a lot of sitting Georgia lawmakers. It's something that Republicans especially mentioned a lot. I think they a lot of them were very fond of, of Zell Miller. And they, they kind of looked back at him as one of the last Democrats who was willing to kind of um, – 
work with them on a lot of issues, and they kind of saw his death as the end of an era in, in Georgia politics. Uh, but, but the reaction was a little bit different with Democrats, right? Yeah, there was a little, uh, some Democrats were, were, were very um, effusive and, and, and wanted to remember his legacy in all, all its ways and forms and fashions and others, um, just kind of focused on the Hope Scholarship part and, and not, not much else. Um, but look, I mean, his, his main funeral, you, you saw the impact he had in the world of politics when not one, not two, but three former presidents showed up to, to, to give their remembrances of him. Because, of course, he was close with not only George W. Bush, as you mentioned, but also with Bill Clinton. Um, and, and Bill Clinton credits him with a lot of things, including uh, introducing him to his, his advisors, Paul Begala, and uh, to helping him win the 1992 race for governor in a way by, by helping move up the timing of the Georgia presidential primary um, in a way to help Bill Clinton. His, his impact was, was enormous, um, um, not just in the world of politics, but also on students like me. Let's go to number nine. It was Keisha Lance Bottoms' first year as Atlanta mayor. And remember, she won by a very narrow margin over Mary Norwood. Uh, and she came in with a lot of questions. Yeah, she did. Um, and, and this came as, um, you know, she was closely aligned with, uh, with Kasim Reed. Um, as he, you know, he, she was kind of his, his hand-picked successor. So there was a lot of questions about what kind of impact he would have um, on her, even if he was out of office. And it came at a time when, when there's a giant ethics cloud hanging over him. We've been hearing about all sorts of investigations, federal and state, into his administration. Um, and, and there was a question about how Mayor Bottoms would be handling all of that, what she would do to convince the public that you could trust City Hall after hearing about all of these ethics scandals. Yeah, you got it. I mean, transparency has been sort of a common thread of her first year, and, and that includes concerns about transparency. Um, with the, in the wake of this corruption probe, which is still ongoing, of course, um, and has netted several high-profile figures in the Reed administration who have ties to Keisha Lance Bottoms, she, she sought to overhaul the city's transparency rules. Critics say she didn't go far enough. And then also transparency played a major role in the decision, the city council's decision to put public funding, a, a, a large amount of public funding, into a, a $5 billion planned mini-city in the Atlanta Gulch. Um, and remember, she had to go back to the drawing board several times because lawmakers were saying that she was not transparent enough, was not open enough about those plans and about the public, the public participation in that plan until it finally passed. And once we saw that pass, we also saw Norfolk Southern, the rail giant based in, in Virginia, immediately uh, decide to move its headquarters to, to Metro Atlanta. Um, so that, that, was, that was a big economic development win, but it also underscored what her biggest challenge of the year, which is transparency and getting that Gulch project through. And Ed, we'll talk about this a little bit more in our 2019 podcast about what we're going to be looking for in the, in the new year. But something we saw with, um, with Kasim Reed was, was kind of his political alliance he had with Governor Deal and how they were able to use that to help bear fruit with this, all sorts of business development deals. And a big question will be how Mayor Bottoms works with incoming Governor Brian Kemp. Um, and, and the Gulch deal kind of you know, played into that, right, Greg? You got it. I mean, the Gulch deal probably would not have happened without um, the, the, the strong advocacy of Governor Deal. I mean, he, he waded into that debate in a way that few governors have waded into city issues before. He personally uh, urged city council men, members to, to pass that deal 
And then his top aide, Chris Riley, went and sat down with city councilors and impressed them to accept this deal and basically told them if you don't, not only will will will, will uh, the chance to develop this this forlorn lot of of railroad tracks and and unused parking lots be left neglected, but also you're turning your backs on a chance to bring in another Fortune 500 company to Georgia. And look, you're right. In 2019, this relationship is going to be a big deal because um, we saw what happened with the Gulch and what what a strong partnership could bring, but also. She's very worried, and city, city council members are very worried about the state's ongoing efforts to study a possible takeover of the Atlanta airport. And that has been the crown jewel of Atlanta city government. And with the corruption probe and with all these concerns still ongoing, um, state lawmakers feel like they have a chance to make that argument. Um, not only that, but there, there's also anxiety on the city level about religious liberty legislation that's been talked about for years and years and years. Brian Kemp, as, as a candidate, was a big fan of that, but then he later came out and said he would only sign an equivalent of the 1993 um, Defense of Marriage Act that, that Bill Clinton signed into law. So it'll be interesting to see how the two of them kind of balance that. In a way, both of them are kind of um, a little more ideological, I guess, uh, kind of going into it than, than perhaps Deal and Kasim were. Um, by the end, you're exactly right. I mean, and and and, and if if there's one place that the D, the deal Kasim Reed partnership worked the best, it was economic development. And you saw that in Fortune 500 company moves. You saw that in other economic development announcements, and you saw that with the 1.5 or 6 billion dollar Mercedes-Benz Stadium, which they both worked on. Um, so we will see that next year. Let's go to number eight. I think when we look back at 2018, we're going to see it as a watershed year for transit expansion in Georgia. And let's think about the different ways. Uh, New hot toll lanes opened all over the metro Atlanta area, speeding traffic for people willing to pay um, several dollars or if not more to speed their commutes. But more importantly, MARTA sort of unveiled a, a major expansion and lawmakers passed the framework for MARTA to fund what could be this, the project's biggest expansion since it opened decades ago. And we're going to have in March a, a vote in Gwinnett County, a referendum, on whether to expand more to there. And that could be the first in what could be a larger wave of, of suburbs, maybe maybe Cobb County, maybe even some exurbs, um, could look at that, that decision later on. And what's really happening here tomorrow is a lot of close-in conservative-leaning counties that used to be solid Republican areas, even the Republican lawmakers that once were, were opposed to this are beginning to see the benefits of mass transit, if only because of the economic development potential there. Exactly. This is a discussion that's been in the works for years now, and especially when you talk to a lot of millennials, especially people who are moving into Atlanta from other parts of the country where perhaps there are more public transportation options, they really treasure be able to not have a car, to be able to ride MARTA or take a bus and not be stuck in hours of traffic on, on the road. So there's, there's, we've kind of been moving that way for a long time. Um, but then there was also, of course, the giant debate over Amazon and that whole rush to try and win that contract. And, and Amazon had told all these cities that were competing for HQ2 that they want to see robust transit options. And all of a sudden, um, you know, the, the city and all the surrounding suburbs were saying, well, we might need to invest a little bit more. So I think uh, we really need to look at it through that lens as well, the business development side. 
You got it. I mean, most of the, the, the major companies that move to Metro Atlanta move very close, if not directly on top of Marta Lines. And we see that in the city of Dunwoody, where State Farm moved a giant expansion and big regional headquarters that will have thousands of jobs in a several-phase uh, development literally on top of the Marta line there, and that's triggering another big spurt of development over there. And from, from one corporate leader to another to another, they're all citing proximity to mass transit. And we, have to, we can't forget, too, it's not just Marta. Uh, the other big development the Governor Deal announced earlier this year was spending an initial $100 million to fund a bus rapid transit line up the spine of Georgia 400, and so that would bring a different type of mass transit, a bus form, of course, uh, to, to Atlanta's northern burbs uh, in a way that, that MARTA still has not expanded up to Alpharetta or up to Roswell yet. Well, now there will be a bus access for people who, who either take bike or ride or, or drive or walk or whatever to a bus station who will jump on a bus and then take it downtown or to Buckhead or to Midtown. And that brings us to number seven. Governor Nathan Deal's final year. And we just mentioned how one of the things he did was announce that bus rapid transit line. He also got a, a lot of, he knocked off a lot of things on his final to-do checklist before he leaves the governor's mansion. He put the finishing touches on his criminal justice uh, initiatives. Um, he, he secured an extension of a Delta tax break after a lot of back and forth, uh, a lot of fighting there, uh, but he managed to get it. Um, and among the other things he also did was secure some emergency funding for Hurricane Michael victims. Not only that, but he helped ensure that there was a Republican in place to succeed him. And, and you know, he wasn't exactly the closest to, to Brian Kemp. He, he tried to stay out of the Republican uh, primary for as long as possible, and he ultimately came in at the last minute for, for Casey Cagle. Um, but it was a priority for him to get a Republican in to make sure that a lot of his legacy items were, or at least his priorities, um, were, were extended even after uh, he retires, and, and he was able to do that as well. Yeah, we'll focus an entire podcast on his legacy in, in early January um, in, in, in the week or so before he leaves office um, for good, because it obviously did, he, did, he deserves a lot more attention for his for his not just his final year, but his entire eight-year record. Um, yeah, look, I mean, it, what stuck out to me throughout this entire race was how all the candidates, Democrats or Republicans, were very, very cautious about even hinting at criticism of him. And even Stacey Abrams, she would always say, she'd always talk fondly about his criminal justice initiatives and say, look, he is not a moderate. He is a conservative, but he is a pragmatic conservative. So she kind of looked at him as a model for leader for, for how she would have governed the state had she won the election. And as you just mentioned, he endorsed Casey Cagle with his very tepid endorsement. Uh, but he also got in behind Brian Kemp right after he won the, uh, the, the Republican nomination and campaigned with him those final, the final stretch of the race. And uh, Brian Kemp needed a huge turnout in North Georgia, especially Hall County, where, where Nathan Deal has a lot of support, and he got it. And that brings us to number six. Hurricane Michael, which was another reminder of how Georgia is not even close to being immune from devastating hurricanes. We've been sideswiped the last couple of years on the Georgia's coast by, by two hurricanes. Well, this time we had a hurricane, Hurricane Michael, that dramatically changed course and just pummeled Georgia coming from the Gulf of Mexico 
after battering the Florida panhandle and really wreaking generational damage on Georgia farmers. You got it. It was the first storm that directly hit Georgia in, I believe, more than 100 years, and it, it entered the state as a Category 3 in, in mid-October. And, you know, driving through central and south Georgia as I was covering the governor's race in that last, uh, you know, in that final stretch before the vote, it was just amazing looking at cotton fields that just completely decimated trees, kind of snapped in half. Um, and, and talking to the Farm Bureau and stuff, they do talk about generational losses, um, especially to timber forests, which is a huge industry for the, the state, for uh, pecan orchards, where it takes, you know, seven, ten years to regrow a lot of these trees and get them fully economically viable again. And after that, you really saw a, a huge effort, not only on the state level, but also on the federal level, to try and get extra money to help these farmers get back on their feet. And, and while it was a little bit easier to get that money on the state level, you saw Nathan Deal call a special session of the, the legislature to try and get some extra money. It's been much more of a struggle on the federal level as, as uh, Congress has dealt with other issues like the border wall that, that has kind of sucked all the political oxygen out of Capitol Hill and, and made it really hard to secure any extra emergency disaster money. You got it. That, and the storm brought President Trump and brought Vice President Pence down, to, down in South Georgia in the final days of the year. And it also triggered a special session from Governor Deal. They brought all lawmakers back after the election for a very rare vote. Uh, it was only the second special session of his time in, in the governor's mansion. Um, and, and this one was about bringing about $500 million or so of relief to Hurricane Michael victims and, and the promise of even more federal funding uh, from Washington, as you mentioned. Exactly. And this is going to be a fight that we're going to see continue into the new year. You're hearing a lot of pleas from Georgia lawmakers who are saying these farmers need extra money. Like these farmers have crop insurance. FEMA has been helping clear storm damage on the ground. But a lot of local Georgia lawmakers are saying farmers need extra money as they prepare to plant their crop in early 2019 as they try and settle up with their lenders and, and bankers for their 2018 crop, uh, which was a bumper crop year. And, and a lot of them, especially cotton farmers, lost almost everything. Let's go to number five, which is the ongoing battle over Plant Vogel. We had a, it was another seminal year for, for Plant Vogel. And as a reminder, it's the nation's only ongoing major commercial nuclear power project. And billions of dollars were at stake earlier this year as regulators voted to allow construction to continue at the nuclear reactors. Uh, the vote involved a project that is billions of dollars over budget and years behind its original schedule. But if regulators had rejected it, it would have essentially delayed and stopped the construction at the plants in Waynesboro, Georgia, which has been in trouble, financial trouble since 2011. Exactly. And this is something that nuclear energy advocates are, are very, you know, it's, it's a huge priority for them. Because as you mentioned, this is the only new nuclear plant that's been under construction in the U.S. And you hear a lot of concern from nuclear energy advocates that the only people building these plants worldwide are, you know, the Chinese. Um, we're, we're giving up our um, 
kind of dominance in this space, and we have been over the last few decades, but there's also been an issue with consumer advocates who worry about the cost of this project, which, as you mentioned, is billions of dollars over budget on taxpayers. Um, much of the fight has been in front of the Public Service Commission, and these are elected representatives who decide whether the costs of, of power plants and various other projects should be passed along to ratepayers. So whether you and I should be subsidizing this plant in our in our monthly power bills. And this was a big this is a big issue that played out on the ballot in in, um, in November, right? Mm -hmm. um, both the incumbent public service commissioners won re-election. Uh, Chuck Eaton, who cast one of the one of the votes supporting the, the continuation of Plant Vogel's construction won his vote after a, a very tense runoff against Democrat Lindy Miller, who came within a whisker of of, uh, of, of defeating him. Um, but this is say the, to say this was a troubled project, uh, which is a word I've used a few times, is kind of an understatement. I mean, construction of the two reactors came to a veritable standstill earlier this year after the lead contractor filed bankruptcy. Um, since it started, the project has suffered numerous delays, design changes a lack of a detailed schedule, um, all these other issues that, that could also request even additional cost overruns. But the real debate these guys have, these regulators have, is, look, if the project gets canceled, they mean billions already invested in the project would have been wasted. But even though they let it continue, that means ratepayers are required to pay more to keep the project running. So it was a, it was a very tough, divisive issue. And look, it's going to continue to cost billions of dollars more. And even now, we're getting reports that um, even the, the current timetable is probably too optimistic and it could take years more for this reactor to be finished. Let's go on to issue number four, top, the fourth biggest story of the year, which is a surge of women who ran for public office and many of them won. Exactly. And a lot of this was in response to the Me Too movement uh, that, that had kind of started in Hollywood circles, but really caught fire across the country. Um, and, and in Georgia, along with everywhere else, pretty much, we did see a surge of women, a record number of women, not only running for Congress, but for the legislature as well. Many of them you know, even won their primaries in, in May and their runoffs in, in July. And uh, there were many historic of battles going into November for, for seats that had never been represented by women before. Um, and, and what was so interesting, you know, most of these were, were Democrats, and they were definitely embracing um, talking about issues like that, whereas in the past, maybe some would have been shy to talk about, um, you know, issues like um, health care coverage or Me Too movement. Many of them were not shy about it. We saw a, a lot of that in these congressional races. We, we saw Lucy McBath in the 6th Congressional district in the North Atlanta suburbs face off against Karen Handel, the Republican incumbent, a historic race where you saw um, two female candidates duke it out, um, and, and Lucy McBath ended up winning. We saw a, another version of that in the 7th district next door in, in Gwinnett and Forsyth counties with, with Carolyn Bordeaux, and you saw that in a lot of the state house races as well. Yeah, we got a taste of this last year during the special elections in 2017 where Almost every woman on the ballot on state legislative races and even city, city races and more local races won their contest either in the special election or a special runoff vote. Um, and, and, and I think one of the best examples last year was the mayoral race where there was the Atlanta mayoral race where there was more than a dozen candidates and we ended up in a, in a runoff between Keisha Bottoms and Mary Norwood. 
the two of the handful of women running. There was, I think, three or four women running, but most of the other candidates were men, and yet it was an all-woman runoff. That gave us a taste of the 2018 um, year of the women to come. And as Tamar, as you mentioned, Tamar, the state legislative changes were, I think, one of the most. Lucy McBath is is, is the biggest, you know, name that won, and obviously Stacey Abrams and Sarah Riggs Amico leading the statewide ticket was a, was a watershed moment as well because they were the first um, uh, female female uh, all women sort of number one two punch in Georgia history on the Democratic side. Um, but they really reshaped the way that the debates, the policy debates were taking place in Georgia as well. We had um, a new urgent sort of appeal for gun control, um, a, a different message on Medicaid expansion, on on some pocketbook issues, some economic issues, and, and a lot of um, it, it sort of reframed the debate over over education and gun safety in the schools as well. And so the this, this trend is not going away either, I think. We've already heard from a number of women who are already looking at running again in 2020, especially some of the contenders that, that didn't make the cut, that didn't end up winning their election this year. One thing we wrote about a little bit earlier this fall, Greg, you and I, um, was about how obviously a lot of these Democratic women were using their gender to their advantage, talking about issues in different ways, uh, talking about the president and a lot of the um, issues being aired in the press about, you know, past alleged affairs and, and his treatment of women. And it was something that really put female Republican candidates in a bind, because as we mentioned, a lot of them couldn't embrace their, their gender in the same way that women could as, as kind of a political tool, because, um, you know, Republicans don't, um, you know, that they don't want to talk about identity politics in the same way. It's not as attractive to the party, but that also might have hurt some of these Republican female candidates as well. And that brings us to our number three issue, which was the Democratic sweep of the suburbs in, in, in Metro Atlanta. I mean, these were areas like Gwinnett County, Cobb County, Henry County that were Republican strongholds for decades. We saw the first chink in that armor in 2016 where Hillary Clinton narrowly carried these three counties. But in 2018, with Stacey Abrams at the top of the ticket, these counties didn't just go slightly Democratic. They went solidly Democratic, about 54, 55% uh, Democratic win in Cobb County and then 57% in Gwinnett County. And that has a way of reshaping Georgia politics, too. If Republicans can't reliably turn to conservative votes in the suburbs anymore, they've got to rejigger their entire game plan for 2020 as well. And that's something we'll be talking a lot more about over the next two years, but what we do know this year is there's about a dozen new legislators, all from Metro Atlanta, all but one of them are from Metro Atlanta's northern suburbs, and they're going to bring a new mindset to the state legislature next year in debates over gun control and over tax breaks and over education and you name it. And, and some of them are more more moderate than others, and some of them are, are more unapologetically progressive and, and the Stacey Abrams in the Democratic mold, um, but they're, they're going to be an interesting new faction under the Gold Dome. 
Exactly. And part of this was, was part of a broader realignment that we're seeing nationally, a kind of urban-rural divide. And I'm putting the suburbs in kind of the, the urban category as well. Um, and part of this was excitement over Stacey Abrams' historic candidacy. She drove out all sorts of new voters to come out to the polls. There, there really was a, a true excitement about it. But then there was also, you know, it's hard to not see this as a rebuke of Donald Trump and, and some, of his, uh, some of his policies. Yeah, we saw at the end of the race, despite the, despite the, uh, the early tendency of Stacey Abrams not to try to nationalize the race and not to try to make it about Donald Trump, when Donald Trump himself comes down and Barack Obama comes down and takes side in the race, it's hard not to, not to see this as a sort of proxy fight um, and, and a preview of what 2020 could look like. And if this is what 2020 could look like for Republicans, they're very worried. Uh, red counties got redder, blue counties got bluer, but the blue counties, especially Metro Atlanta, are, are the ones that are the fastest growing in Georgia. And there's the ones where, with all the vote, with most of the voters and, and, and a lot of the density and a lot of where the TV ads and, and mailers can target. Um, and so, uh, and as you mentioned, I mean, the, one, of the, one of the biggest surprises and the biggest winners of this blue divide here in the suburbs was Lucy McBath. And she's going into her first year in Congress uh, with, with a lot to prove. Exactly. But, but think about, I mean, 2018 was a year when Donald Trump, his name was not on the ballot. What's going to happen in 2020 when his name is on the ballot? Not only that, but you're having all sorts of Republicans who are running for re-election next year, or no, 2020, in two years, who um, are going to have to carve their own identity and kind of dance this very elegant dance. Trump is still incredibly popular among their base, but especially in the suburbs and the city, it's going to be imperative on them to also make sure that they create their own brand. And this is something that we're going to particularly be following closely with David Perdue, uh, the premier kind of statewide race that's going to be on the ballot in 2020. He's been a top ally of the president and insists to us that he's not going to hide from that as he runs for his first re-election battle. Um, but he's also made clear that, that he has kind of his own brand that he's going to be emphasizing on the campaign trail. And he'll be looking to go right back to those suburbs. I mean, look, most Republican strategists think that it'll be very tough to win back a county like Gwinnett County, but they do think that they can cut their losses in Gwinnett County and maybe not lose 57, 43-ish, but get a little closer and get to the high 40s uh, in a way that Brian Kemp could not. And, Brian, and David Perdue will have some advantages Brian Kemp didn't have, including the power of incumbency. Well, let's get to issue number two, and we're getting down to the top issue, but issue number two goes hand in glove with the top issue. Uh, this is voting rights, and this is how voting rights and the debate over ballot access and, ballot and voter suppression played into the race for Georgia governor. And it was a major factor. In a way, this was an inevitable clash between Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp, who had been warring with each other over voting rights for much of the past decades, long before they both got into the race for governor. But it really intensified uh, once, they, once, once they both emerged as their party's nominees um, and, and started fighting over whether or not Brian Kemp's tactics and policies and his procedures as Secretary of State a, whether or not he should have even resigned as Secretary of State and con or continued to, to, to oversee elections while also running for Georgia's top office, and B, whether those policies ended up intimidating or suppressing votes in some way. 
Exactly. And that's what drove a lot of the national attention into the gubernatorial race as well. We saw a lot of year-end lists of most Googled politicians in 2018 and topping the list above every single person, above Beto O'Rourke and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was Stacey Abrams right there at number one. She, of course, had a um, had a uh, voter registration effort, the New Georgia Project, seeking to um, seeking to uh, activate a lot of voters that, that maybe don't come out as often. And, and there was a lot of attention played to not only how, how Brian Kemp, as Secretary of State, interacted with that group, but also him carrying out a, a law passed by the legislature that allowed him to boot voters off the rolls who perhaps hadn't been as active in, in previous years. Yeah, and this is setting up a giant debate for next year over a, a range of issues. You mentioned one of them, voter cancellations, because state law does allow the Secretary of State to cancel the registrations of voters who had not been active in several previous elections. Um, also, the exact match standards that the, your name should exactly match the name on the voter registration rolls will also be debated again. And I think some, some broader issues, what, what the Kemp campaign always complained about, and it's true, is that is that local elections officials are in charge of their uh, votes. They're in charge, so if there's long lines at a Cobb County precinct or at, uh, if, if there's missing hardware at a DeKalb County precinct, um, it's up to DeKalb County or Cobb County or, you know, you name it, the, the county that's involved in the debate to figure it out. What Democrats and Abrams allies often said was, hey, that, that might be true, but Brian Kemp, as the top state official in charge of this should also be delivering guidance and giving giving advice and helping these counties and their county elections officials navigate these really tough times. And what we ended up seeing were hours-long waits at some of these polling precincts um, and, and then you, dozens of voters who said that they had troubles getting absentee ballots, that they had mail issues, that they were turned away from from polling precincts, dozens is, is an understatement. And the Stacey Abrams campaign ended up saying it had thousands of people call one of its hotlines. Um, so what's clear to, to lawmakers from both sides of the aisle is that Georgia does have significant voting issues. And it'll be really interesting to see if, if next year when lawmakers take up a new voting machine process, because there's, there's a consensus that Georgia needs some sort of new new form of, of voting to augment the electronic voting system it already has, and they also tackle some of these debates. And one of them that I hear on the tip of the tongues of many lawmakers is addressing the uneven standards, county-by-county uh, county standards, of how to count absentee and provisional ballots. Because Towns County could have a very different way of counting provisional ballots than Troop County could, and the state needs a new standard, a lot of lawmakers say. And then not only that, one thing I want to mention really quickly is the ongoing debate we're having nationally over the security of elections and, and of data being kept by each state about different voters. And there, there was a revelation a few years ago about the state server being kept at Kennesaw State University and how a lot of sensitive voter information ended up being accidentally sent out to to news organizations. Um, there's going to be a huge debate over that as well going on not only in Atlanta, but in D.C. over the next few years. And that leads us to our number one story of the year in Georgia politics. It was, of course, the governor's race between Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp, where we saw Stacey Abrams come within a whisker, come within about 
16,000 votes of forcing a runoff against Brian Kemp. And if you ask many political observers a few years ago, if the race would be even close to this close, many of them would just laugh. But look, it, it, it became a, a, one of the premier national elections in a very busy midterm cycle. Uh, and it was because Stacey Abrams was able to drive out a surge of left-leaning, many minority voters who don't often vote in these midterm elections. And, but also, she was able to appeal to those suburban kind of moderates that we talked about earlier who usually vote Republican, but either because of her policies, because of the disdain for, for Trump, for both, uh, ended up voting Democratic in this election. Exactly. She she sparked a ton of, of attention because of her different approach that she was taking, uh, whereas Democrats in the past running statewide had kind of leaned more toward the center to try and appeal to those same suburban voters, to moderates, to disgruntled Republicans. Abrams tried a new approach where she was very unapologetically liberal on a lot of social issues, whereas Kemp was very unapologetically conservative. And I think that's what drew a lot of national attention to this race as well. We also heard from a lot of statewide or, or you know, potential Democrats candidates going forward who were very closely watching what Abrams was doing to see if it was more any more successful than the Democrats who had failed in their bids over the last decade or so. And I think her narrow loss shows that, that or, you know, pretends that maybe we'll get a whole lot more kind of liberal Democrats running statewide in the next few years. I think so, too. I mean, unabashedly progressive, as, as, as Stacey Abrams um, supporters would often say. And, and that's exactly the the stance she took on a lot of these issues. I mean, she came out very, very early with, she got Planned Parenthood's endorsement and, and said that she would fight any remote attempt to restrict abortions. She became the first mainstream Democratic candidate for governor in decades to call for gun restrictions and, and gun control laws, and, and including a ban on assault rifles and new waiting periods in a way that Democrats even four years ago couldn't have imagined. I mean, past Democratic contenders either called themselves NRA Democrats or had the NRA's endorsement. So that shows you what a sea change uh, that was. And also her criminal justice policies were, were very progressive, including uh, a call to decriminalize a lot of drug offenses and to further Governor Deal's criminal justice initiatives. But she also kind of blended that with more mainstream appeals. Uh, she liked to say that uh, Medicaid expansion, poll after poll after poll, including several AJC polls, showed a majority of Georgians supported that. So she often talked about Medicaid expansion, about new incentives to boost small businesses in Georgia, and also put, pouring more state funding into the K-12 system, which has been a call for, for Democrats for decades. So in some ways, she veered from the party line. In others, um, she, she stuck to it. But either way, she was able to, to capture the excitement and energy um, from, from a new wave of Democrats and get closer than any Democrat has gotten before uh, since Roy Barnes. Then again, you had Brian Kemp, who secured more votes for governor than anybody else in state history. And this was a guy who was not supposed to win the Republican nomination. Casey Cagle entered as, as the favorite. He'd been kind of preparing for this for years. And, and it took a while for Kemp to be able to distinguish himself in, in the field. Um, but he, he kind of had a series of, of eye-catching things that happened to him that was able to kind of propel him to the top. As we were getting closer to the 
primary in May, he came out with a series of really eye-catching ads. He had the famous Jake ad where he's polishing the shotgun in front of his daughter's scooter. He had the other ad where he's blowing stuff up and driving around in his pickup truck talking about um, picking up illegal immigrants. That helped him propel him into the runoff. You had the secret tape that Clay Tippins had of Casey Cagle. You had Trump's last-minute endorsement. And, and he kind of walked this interesting line, right? In the primary, you saw him unapologetically conservative on issues like religious liberty, guns, immigration. And you saw a, a little bit of a pivot going into the election day where he talked about oh, yeah. continuing a lot of the legacy items that Nathan Deal had, especially on the economy. You can make a great Netflix series out of this, this race. And maybe a book or two. Maybe someone's going to do the Netflix series part. But uh, I was with him when he announced his race for governor way back in an April Saturday morning at the Cobb County GOP just after the end of the session. And he came in with all sorts of Trump-like rhetoric and promised to make to put Georgians first and fight fake media and so on. And that was how he waged his primary campaign. Uh, there was a, there was one or two candidates I can think of that tried to outflank him on the right overall, um, but he was going to be the, 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 the best known, he was going to make himself the best known candidate who was going to be um, furthest to the right on many of the social issues we had. He promised to define religious liberty. He promised to expand gun rights to constitutional carry and to pass sales tax breaks on guns and ammo. He promised to sign the nation's toughest abortion restrictions into law. Uh, on, on many issues, he was further to the right than his Republican rivals and ended up parlaying those, those ads you mentioned and distrust over Casey Cagle that really crystallized with that secret tape that, Lindsay, that Clay Tippins made um, into a smashing victory over Casey Cagle with Donald Trump's endorsement, of course. Um, and as you said, he did pivot to the center a bit. But he also never abandoned his conservative roots and near the end of the campaign made his, made his campaign almost universally about driving out those Trump voters, the same voters that delivered Trump a five-point victory in Georgia in 2016. He needed them to come back for him in 2018, and many of them did. He ended up exceeding Trump's margins in a sweep of rural counties. I mean, counties that Trump won by 89%, 88% of the vote, Brian Kemp won by 90, 91% of the vote. That's really hard to do. At the same time, he tried to, to, to reach out to the center some more. He had his um, teacher pay raise plan. It would cost at least $600 million, probably much more than that when all the, uh, the, the final tally is done. Um, and, and he had a, a series of ads that ran on Metro Atlanta TV featuring his wife, his, his three teenage daughters, some of his background. But in the end, as we mentioned earlier, it was a politically polarized race, all about turning out base supporters. And when Donald Trump came to, to Macon, Georgia, uh, two days before the election, that's what he got. He got base supporters who were able to come out energized and ended up delivering him a very narrow victory over Stacey Abrams, but a victory nonetheless. And now he looks toward governing. And what he's told us in interview after interview is he's not going to abandon his conservative promises, but... It sure seems like Republicans are going to focus more on those economic pocketbook issues in the coming year. And, uh, oh, do we have a lot to cover in the upcoming year. We'll do a whole podcast about this in the weeks ahead, but health care, economics, David Perdue Senate race, um, Trump up for re-election, 
there will be so much more to talk about. And we just want to thank you guys for listening to us this year as, as we were trying to break down what was unfolding before our eyes in a pretty darn historic year. Amen. A special thank you to you, Tamar, to our fearless, amazing, awesome, fantastic producer, Bria Felician, and to all you Yay. listeners out there who have given us such a great first-year start to this podcast. Thank you for joining us every week. Well, that's all for this week's edition of the Politically Georgia podcast. Head to AJC.com forward slash politics to subscribe to Politically Georgia. You'll get access to our daily newsletter, along with all of our stories and updates on all things Georgia politics. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and rate us. It really means a lot to us when you do. And as always, thank you for listening. Hip hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip hop. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.